And if that sermon title has you singing a certain song, well then, maybe. Inside joke, maybe you'll, you'll think of a song that uh, <coughs> rings there. Let me tell you this morning as we start out about Bob. Bob has four friends and one day his four friends in the midst of a conversation decide they're actually going to go skydiving. They're going to go up in this plane, open the window and jump out thousands of feet in the air. And so they're all talking about it and Bob's standing there and Bob's thinking, um, oh, man, not me. That's not, that's not for me. I'm not going to go up in this plane and, and jump out thousands of feet in the air. I just, that would not be me. And now, honestly, while Bob sits there and hears them talking about it, and Bob's over here thinking, yeah, I can never see myself doing that. I would never do that. The truth is, deep inside, Bob's thinking, I wish I could do that. I wish that could be me. I wish I could jump out of a plane thousands of feet in the air. And I think that story, while that's a fictional story, that's all our story in some way. I can think about a few times over the years, I've been uh, given the invitation if I could raise the, you know, the $2,000 to go overseas to some country and be a part of a missions conference or go on a missions trip, and I've never done that. And uh, reality, when I, when I, the first thing when I think about going to a, to a foreign country like that, like going to Haiti or the Philippines or something on a missions trip, you know the first thought is that crosses my mind, my family will know, <laughs> what am I going to eat for two weeks? <laughs> because I, you know, I'm such a picky eater, you know. I mean, I like the basic you know, American food, and so I don't do real good with a lot of other stuff. Um, and so I, yeah, I've never embarked on one of those for a variety of reasons, you know, when you've got special needs kid in your home, that kind of impacts things sometimes. And, and, and then you get the financial thing, although you can always raise that money. But I look back on that and I think, well, to some extent, yeah, I'd like to say I went on a short-term missions trip. I'd like to say I went over and spoke at one of these conferences, and, but I've never done that. You know, the reality is I think we all have things when those issues come up, maybe it's not a short-term missions conference. Maybe it is for you. Maybe it wouldn't be the food. It would be the living conditions or the weather or the idea of sharing your faith, whatever it might be. Going to war-torn Haiti might be something that scares you, and yet at the same time you think, boy, I would like to do that. The other night we spent uh, here at the church, we spent all night at the, at the church here in prayer. Well, I can't say we technically didn't spend all night. We were here till the middle of the night praying. Um, and we've done this twice now. Me and Wayne did it the first time. There were five of us on Friday night, and we met here at the prayer. And the one question God gave me as I was thinking about that afterward <clears throat> and, uh, and wrapping up this message for today was this question. You know, you might look at that and think, yeah, I could never do all night, all night prayer. That's not me. I could never last that long or, or, or last that late. Um, <clears throat> and yet the reality is I wonder, is that something that you would look at and say, but, you know, I wish it could be me. I wish, yeah. I mean, I can never see myself going to an all-night prayer meeting. Wow. But you know what? I wish that could be me. And I thought about that question, and I thought about that as that applies to maybe different things. Are there things in our life that we would never see ourselves doing, and yet then we stop and we think, well, you know, that might be out of my comfort zone, but even while I can never see myself doing that, I'd like to see myself doing that. And uh, <clears throat> God is always moving us out of our comfort zone into different areas of life. Now, here's the thing. The reason I bring up this all-night prayer thing, the reason for this, and i got to be real clear here, is, is in no way to make anybody feel like you're supposed to do this. I said this before. We're all wired differently, have different spiritual gifts. We are, we're different ages, have different health. Cons- you know, there's all kinds of factors. So it's not for everybody. But the reason for why 
do I share that? Is because of what we saw the last two weeks with Paul. The last two weeks, Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus, and he said, for this reason. And what was his reason for praying for them? Why? Because when he looked at them, he saw this potential in them. He saw this incredible potential in them and and their responsibility and their potential. And because of this potential they had, he prayed that they would know their potential in Christ. And so that's the only reason I share it is because as really as a pastor, it's my job to challenge, to equip, to encourage us to find our hidden potential and to discover those things. We think we could never do that. I could never go to a foreign country as a short-term missionary or I could never spend all night at the church in prayer. Uh, But I'd like to. And the reality is you might surprise yourself that there are some things you could do you maybe think you could never do. At the same time, when you you think about this whole concept, there's the why behind it. Why why do we gather all night at the church and pray like this? Well, the why is because of what it accomplishes for us and in us. Here's the reality. We don't do this because it makes you more spiritual. Let me just tell you something. When everybody left on a Friday night, I didn't stand at the door and give them the equivalent of a, of a Boy Scout badge saying, all night prayer, congratulations. <laughs> you check that off your list. It's not like that. It didn't make you more spiritual to come pray all night. We pray because of what? It can accomplish. And there are things that can only be accomplished through prayer. It's just throughout Scripture. And I think sometimes if we would grasp this reality in our own life, we'd look at those things that we really want to see happen in our life, in our church, in our families, you know, in our kids, and whatever it might be, at our job. And we just want these things to desperately happen. And if we could just grasp the reality that those things could maybe happen, it just might take prayer. It just might take prayer. And I think, you know, that if we could realize the power in prayer, we might be much quicker to go to God like the disciples went to Jesus and say, Lord, teach me how to pray. In fact, Lord, teach me how to pray all night so that I can see those things accomplished in my life that I so desperately want. One other thing about this all-night prayer gathering is kind of the reason behind it. And one of the reasons I'm compelled for things like this, and it's kind of the way I'm wired, and so I've always had this passion for prayer and so grateful. Again, I always say this all the time, but so grateful to Wayne that he has linked up with me for a dozen years or more now, and we just pray, and it's just amazing. But the reason is, there's this verse in Matthew 11, and Jesus Shortly before he goes to the cross, he does this the second time. He did this when he started his ministry, and then right before he goes to the cross, he goes into the temple, and he goes in and he turns over the the money changers' tables. They were the ones that were selling the sacrifices, the animals that would be used for the sacrifices, and the people had to come and sacrifice, and they had to buy these animals. And so he comes in, and he turns over the temples, And here's what he says. He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he's quoting the prophet Isaiah here. And he's just basically saying, God's temple, God's church is to be known as a place of prayer. And here were all these people who, these money changers who were doing business and turning a profit and taking advantage of God's people who had to come and sacrifice in the temple. And it just broke Jesus' heart and he had this incredible passion. As I said, he did this on two separate occasions. And that's why I really feel compelled to things like all night prayer 
to move our church more and more into this, this thing of being a church known for prayer. And there's going to be other ideas we're going to come up with and we're going to do to just, just encourage prayer here as a church because it's what God really desires of us. In the end, God wants us to pray. It's about the mountains that we can move when we pray, the temptations we can defeat when we pray, and the battles that we can win as we pray. And think about the facets of prayer. Again, what is prayer? Think about the various facets of prayer. Um, The passion in basically to be a church that is known for prayer. But think about the various facets that we uh, discover in prayer. And one is that prayer is a conversation. We will see that today in the story we look at. At the same time, prayer is an act of worship. We'll see that in today's story as well. And you know what else prayer is? Sometimes prayer is a battlefield. Prayer is where we go out and we do spiritual battle. And we will definitely see that in today's story. It's a phenomenal story that we will see that very reality in. In this series, Bow Down and Look Up, we're looking at this, this, this correlation, this bringing together of our worship and our prayer and how the two link together. And it's just this simple reality and this big idea. The higher we exalt God, the deeper our prayers will go. And it's just been amazing to me, even not knowing how this would unfold in all these different messages, how God has used that thought in all of these different messages. And we're going to see this picture again today. Um, In fact, look at today's big idea. Here's today's big idea. Prayer is a battlefield where the higher we exalt God, the deeper our surrender and the greater our victory. And the deeper our prayers, we get to pray in those deeper prayers below the surface in our inner being those deeper prayers can lead to much greater victory. And there are some victories we will only discover and only find on the battlefield. So, a little context here as we get into it today. King Judah, or King Judah, excuse me, the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat today, is who we're going to look at. And uh, Jehoshaphat is identified as one of Israel's really good kings. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he walked in the ways of uh, King David. He did form a brief alliance with uh, the evil king Ahab and God reprimanded him for that and he kind of (laughs) righted his ways and he got directly back to serving the Lord. And here is the story we find. We're going to look at today as four lessons on how to fight the spiritual battle in prayer and we're going to learn these from Jehoshaphat. And so here are the four things we need to know. We'll start in 2 Chronicles 20 and here's what the text says. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites... And with them, some of the Menunites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you. Second Chronicles 20, verse 1 and 2. Here's verse 3. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord from all the cities of Judah. They came to seek the Lord. Here's the first thing I want us to see about Jehoshaphat, this righteous king. I want you to see that his first inclination in this, in this problem that he faces, in this crisis, his first inclination was prayer. And our first inclination needs to be prayer. We need to be immediately to the mindset of, I need to pray about this. I don't think we really appreciate oftentimes those people who lived and navigated in the Old Testament. It is very easy to think that their experience is our experience, that their world was our world. It was not. It was incredibly, incredibly different. For one thing, Jehoshaphat does not have the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
Second thing, Christ has not resurrected from the grave, meaning Christ has not resurrected in Jehoshaphat. How did the people of this day, how did they relate to God? Think about how they related to God, primarily through the law and the sacrifices. And uh, we would say God primarily spoke to them through, through the law and the prophets. That's how God spoke to them. They didn't have 66 books of the Bible. They didn't have all the promises that you and I have. They didn't have the reality of the gospel played out before them. They had shadows of the gospel, and they didn't really understand them. And so their world was so different. That's Jehoshaphat's reality. And so it's pretty interesting that Jehoshaphat here, his first inclination is to pray. Now let me give you, by contrast, uh, an example of another king of Israel. I want to show you something. There's another king named Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah, he is, he is confronted with a similar situation. In fact, here's what it says about King Hezekiah. Now, this is probably several kings removed from Jehoshaphat. Several kings removed later on. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. So there was none like him among all the kings of Judah before him, nor among those who after him or those who were before him. So he even is supposedly superior to Jehoshaphat in his spiritual walk here. So think about this. Hezekiah faces a really tough situation where the enemy has come. It's been prophesied. The enemy's coming and he's wiped out 39 to 40 of the cities of Judah. And there's one, one city left, Jerusalem, and Hezekiah's there. And Hezekiah's like, Lord, you got to help us. He's got this, this serious problem. And so here is what Hezekiah does in his situation. Second uh, Kings 19.3, the, he sends, what he does is he sends some priests to um, Isaiah the prophet. Because how do they relate to God? Through, through the prophets. So he sends, Hezekiah sends the priests to the prophet Isaiah. And they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Basically, this, this uh, enemy has come and has told, Hezek, or told Hezekiah, yeah, I'm coming for you, and I'm coming for Jerusalem, and no other nation has been able to withstand me, and I'm going to wipe you out. So what he does is he sends the priest to Isaiah, but notice what he says. It may be that the Lord... Your God. And notice how he relates to God, this righteous king. He relates to God as Isaiah's God. Maybe your God. Will you pray? And we all do this. We try to find, right? We try to find somebody that we trust and we respect, someone spiritual, and say, hey, will you pray for me? And so that's what he's doing, and that's well, well and fine. But just notice the context there that he doesn't say, hey, you know, uh, would you pray to God for us? Even just, just generically pray to God. He says, pray to your God. There is kind of a disconnect there in Hezekiah's story. And if you read the rest of his story, God works on Hezekiah in that area. I just want you to understand that the relationship we have today, um, our relationship today with God is so different. So Hezekiah approached God through the prophet Isaiah. And today we have the indwelling spirit right here. And we can just so quickly go right to God and say, Lord, help me. It's not, it's not that Hezekiah couldn't do that. It's just that it wasn't his first inclination. I don't think the relationship was as intimate as today. Our relationship today with God is much more personal and direct. 
He puts his spirit in us. Christ is resurrected to life in us. We have the Christ life. We have this ability. And so if, if, if in this story, Jehoshaphat, if his first instinct is to pray, how much more should my first instinct not to be to look internally to the Holy Spirit in any problem, in any struggle, and just bring it to God and pray about it and say, Lord, I can't deal with this, instead of coming up with all of my human strategies. Romans chapter 8, think about this, going internally with our concerns. Likewise, the Spirit, this is our reality. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit's in us and helps us pray. So our first inclination should always be, whatever the crisis is, whatever the problem is, no matter how big, no matter how small, to turn to God and say, Lord, I need your involvement. And notice here in that passage how the Holy Spirit helps us pray those deeper prayers. We keep talking about praying deeper prayers. And the Holy Spirit helps us pray with, with words that are, that are so deep. They're, they're just deep groanings that we don't even understand. And he prays according to the will of God. So, first inclination needs to be to pray. And the reality is, that's why we can pray without ceasing. We're told to pray without ceasing. We can do that because we have the Holy Spirit. So, that's the first thing we see here about Jehoshaphat. He fears the situation and in some senses, I think he fears God. I think he learned a lesson in his last battle when he kind of sided with, with Ahab and narrowly escaped with his life. Uh, Jehoshaphat here has come to the point now of how he is going to totally trust the Lord. And his first inclination is prayer. Here's a second lesson. Let's go on here in the story. Verses 5 and 6, And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. So here's the second thing. Prayer should always be an avenue for worship. It should always be an avenue for worship. We've seen this in every... Every message so far in this series, we've seen that prayer just went, it goes straight to worship. Jesus taught them how to pray. It included worship. Paul, when he prays, immediately worships. Worship is just tied to prayer. And uh, we see that exactly here. He starts his prayer out by taking the time to worship. Prayer should always be an avenue for worship. The simple fact is true effective prayer is rooted in worship, praise, and thanksgiving. Those are the kind, of, that's what you see throughout Scripture and in your life. If you want to pray effective prayers, learn to worship, to praise, and to give thanks. And sometimes I do. Sometimes I, I'm, I'm, I'm led, God, God, I love to come here and pray for the church and for you, for the families, for my own family. I love to come and pray here. And I'll, I'll find myself, I'll come in and, and I'll just come in and start pouring my heart out. And then I'm like, wait, I need to stop. I need to worship. I need to say thanks. I need to give some praise. I need to be much more instinctive and much more intentional in doing that. And it strikes me that while Jehoshaphat is intentional and instinctive in praying, he's also intentional and instinctive in taking the time to worship. And remember what we said. When it comes to our needs, right? Whatever we're requests are, God knows them all already, right? And so 
It's not like we don't have time. It's like, I don't have time to praise you. I've got such a long laundry list of requests. God knows them all. God knows them all. And so we have time to worship Him and to praise Him. That's the reality. And again, the higher we exalt God, the deeper our prayers will go. And the higher we exalt God, the deeper our surrender and the greater our victory will be. So we want to take the time to worship the Lord in prayer. There are some advantages. Think about this. There are some advantages to worship in the context of prayer. We can see them in the text here. Verse 6, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. And here's one thing that we see is that worship exalts God over my problems. When I take the time to worship God, I'm exalting Him over, He's sovereign over my problems. He's the God who rules in heaven, rules over everything and everyone, including my problems. Same verse, how about this? Worship takes the physical problems into the spiritual realm. Worship takes things out of my hands and puts them in God's hands, the God of heaven, the God who rules the spiritual realm. In fact, we even saw earlier that when they started out, what they do? They prayed and what? They fasted. What is fasting? But moving things from the physical realm to the spiritual realm. It's starving ourselves physically to focus on the spiritual And when we worship in the context of prayer, we're moving things from the physical world to the spiritual. That's not to say there are not times when there are concrete physical things to do. There are times we pray, we got a relationship issue, and we're praying about this relationship issue, and God's up there saying, you know what, you just need to forgive the person. Or you just need to say you're sorry to the person, (laughs) you know. Sometimes we're up there praying about some financial issue, and God's saying, you know, all you need to do is just sell something and get rid of some of that debt you got, and it will solve the whole problem. There's times in life when there are just concrete, physical, righteous, godly things we need to do. There's other times, like the situation here where, yeah, there's no solution without going to God and taking things into the spiritual realm and waiting and trusting on him to answer. Worship, look at verse 7. Did not you not, our God, derive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And worship acknowledges the faithfulness of God. We sang about it today, but worship just acknowledges God's faithful, reminds us of his faithfulness in the past, and says he will be faithful in the future. So I just worship the Lord, and I'm reminded of his incredible faithfulness the god of yesterday is the god of today the cross that saved me yesterday is the cross that sustains me today the word that was written yesterday is the word that encourages me and builds me and feeds me up today same verse verse 7 worship claims the promises of god think about that jehoshaphat reminds god not that god needed reminding but he reminds him of the promises he made to israel you have promised us this land you promised this to abraham your friend our father you made this promise and worship does that worship just drives us back to the promises of god not all promises in the bible are to us but there are a lot that are God will never leave me or forsake me. God is for me, not against me. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. When I am weak, then I am strong. The truth will set me free. God will meet all my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. God who began a good work in me will complete it. God's promises, they bring us a sense of God's peace. 
And then worship identifies my relationship with God. I'm praying to a father. He identifies Abraham here as the friend of God. We have this incredible relationship with God. And when I worship, it reminds me of this great relationship I have with God. Incredible relationship I have with God. And then worship expresses our dependence upon God. Look at verses 9 through 12 here in just a minute as he kind of, uh, kind of wraps up this part of the, the passage If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Notice how dependent he is upon God. And so, and now behold, the men of Amnon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy and these are two nations that God did not let them wipe out when they came into the promised land and now they're returning this thankfulness by attacking Israel and so he's just pointing that out verse 11 behold they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession which you have given us to inherit oh our God will you not execute judgment on them for we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Notice the incredible dependence they have upon God. Worship does that. It reminds me how dependent I am upon God. Most of the time in life when we get ourselves into trouble, you know why we get ourselves into trouble? It's because we are just independent. We divorce ourselves from God. We say, I I can handle this one on my own. I don't need you. I don't need to follow your advice. I, I can do this my own way. I can handle it on my own. And worship reminds us, He is the vine, I am the branch. He is the source of my life, the source of my strength. He is my hope. And remember again, we think about bringing our requests to God, that bringing our requests to God is an act of worship. We've said this repeatedly. It's an act of worship because what does it do? It it says that I believe that God cares about my problem, that God is greater than my problem, and that God has a will in my problem, that God actually has a will in what I'm going through. So there's a sense of worship when I bring my problems to God. Worship also focuses on God. Worship gets my eyes off of myself, off of my problems, off of my limitations, off of my surroundings, off of the enemy, gets my focus on God where my hope comes from. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. There is great advantages when we learn to worship within the context of our prayer. And then finally, worship humbles me. And we start out, remember, we start out, what's the advantage? Worship exalts God over my problems. At the same time, worship humbles me. And when I get that that right, when I exalt God and I'm humbled, well, then my prayers are going to go deeper. My prayers are going to go deeper. The higher we exalt God, the deeper our prayers will go. In fact, I think this is fascinating because I didn't plan this out. I, I, didn't, I didn't plan any of this out. So week to week, I just sit down with the, and say, okay, what's the prayer we're going to look at today? And this is how God has unfolded it. Last week, we said this, the deeper our prayers will go, the richer our life will be. Today, the deeper our prayers will go and the greater our victories will be. God's just taking us through this journey of, of, a, of a rich life, of a victorious life, of, of all of this that's rooted in what? Exalting Him and learning how to worship in the context of our prayer. Let's go on. Verse 13. 
So what happens in the story here? Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaniah, son of Jeel, son of Matanya, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde for the battle is not yours, but the Lord. How encouraging is that? Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Just remember verse 17. Stand firm, hold your position. That's God's battle plan. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Verse 18. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korathites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice prayer needs to be a community exercise did you catch that that there there is a community very first sermon in this series was the lord's prayer and what did jesus tell them go into your closet close the door and pray in private there are times for that there are times for community prayer there's times to get together as a group at the church and pray all night here they didn't all go home and shut the door and pray they gathered together as one and they prayed a couple things that jumped out at me here was just the the idea of leadership setting the example to pray leadership needs to set the example to pray and there are two different areas that i see this community aspect driven here one of course is in the church we need to be a church that is filled with with prayer that's god's will that we would be what a house of prayer that we would be known for prayer And so we need to do that. We need to pray. We need as leadership to set that example of prayer for the entire church. And I think it's fascinating here that they all follow who? They follow King Jehoshaphat. He didn't have a priest come and pray. He didn't, he didn't delegate that to the priest or the prophet and say, you're the spiritual one. You come lead us in prayer. King Jehoshaphat walked out there and said, we need to pray. How awesome. But then there's another content. You know the other community of prayer? Did you catch it in here? Did you catch it in here? Being a home that is filled with prayer. Note what it said there back there in verse, um, uh, verse 13. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And so here, here they are by families. And the families are there. And we need more prayer in our families. We just need to just teach our kids how important prayer is. Can you think that was a pretty impressionable moment for these families, for these kids, watching this all unfold? Israel, their history had a lot of impressionable moments that were passed on to their kids. The Exodus. I think the Exodus, the Passover, the Exodus marching through the Red Sea, the kids witnessed all that. You think that didn't leave an impression on them? I'll bet you those Israelite kids saw a few, uh, a few animal sacrifices in their time Watched that animal be slaughtered a few times and it probably left an impression on them. We need to leave an impression on our kids. There's a movie out right now called Unplanned. It's a movie about abortion. It's a true real life story. And uh, some TV networks won't run commercials for it. 
um, it, it, it's kind of this hot button issue because it's about abortion. Somebody on the radio said, said this about the movie because it, it got, a rate, it got a, an R rating. And the reason it's rated R um, <clears throat> might be to, to discourage some people from seeing it, but they say it's because it's so graphic, because it's about abortion and it's graphic, which kind of proves the point about abortion. Kind of proves the point that abortion's graphic. But somebody on the radio said, you want to impress the truth about abortion on your kids, take them to the movie. They will never question abortion again. The movie is that powerful. You see it, and it's like common sense says, wow. And so here, in this context, this moment is so impressionable. We need to impress these things. I was thinking we need godly impressions to save our children from godly sorrow. Give your kids godly impressions today to save them from godly sorrow tomorrow save them from godly sorrow tomorrow. Our big idea, prayer is a battlefield where the higher we exalt God, the deeper our surrender and the greater our victory. Let's go to the final set of verses here. Verses 20 through 23. And we're not going to read the very end of this, but this really gives us the, the jest of what we need to see. And they rose early in the morning the next day and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Amnon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah, so they were routed. For the men of Amnon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. And we've seen this, this before. I guess it's the coolest thing. You just see this where the enemy, they just kind of start killing each other. It's just fascinating. You see this time and time and time again. And... Um, they just kind of kill themselves. And what does Israel do? Israel just kind of sits back and watches what unfolds. Here is our fourth lesson today. Um, I want to leave us this morning, before I get into that, looking at this question I raised earlier. It has to do with the why of prayer. So why do we pray? And I'm going to give you right now the ultimate goal of prayer. If I said, what is the ultimate goal of prayer? Well, the short answer could be, our response, because prayer will always elicit a response, because prayer is a conversation with God, and I'm conversing with God, and so it should lead to a response. But here's our final lesson, okay? So our first inclination needs to be prayer. Prayer should always be an avenue for worship. Prayer needs to be a community exercise, and the ultimate goal of prayer is surrender. The ultimate goal of prayer is surrender, and prayer, as I said, will elicit a response within us, and the ultimate response is surrender. We think about praying because of what prayer can accomplish, right? We talk about that. Some things can only be accomplished in prayer. Well, let me tell you, the greatest thing that can be accomplished in prayer is what is accomplished in us when we learn to surrender. When we, when we desire, we want God's will more than our own wants and our own ways when we can surrender to God. You know, I was thinking about this idea. So prayer elicits a response. And there's one thing I was thinking about. What about when we pray to God and He's silent? There's this phenomenal song we played it the other night called The Silence of God. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal lyrics. What do you do 
when you pray to God and God is silent? Because sometimes He is. What is our response in that moment? Our response to the silence of God, we respond with trust and worship. With trust and with worship. When, when God is silent in our prayers. The silence of God does not prove the absence of God. What it says is that God knows what I need at that moment is His silence. That even in His silence, He is saying something to me. And then I need to learn to trust and worship Him even amidst the silence. So there's going to be times in our life we're going to pray. And we're going to feel like, God, I'm praying. And God, you're not answering. And God, where are you? And God, I keep crying out to you and I don't hear anything. And even in those moments, we trust and we worship and acknowledge that he believes at this point, I need his silence. But I want to think about this idea of surrender here. Because the ultimate response to prayer, the ultimate goal of prayer is my surrender. And let me give you three examples of surrender. I surrender my problems for his peace. I surrender my problems for his peace. Philippians 4 tells us, right? We said it earlier in this series. We bring our petitions to God and we find a peace that passes understanding. We dwell on the things of God and we get this peace that just does not make sense to the world, but it makes sense to us. And in the text here, God tells Jehoshaphat and the people not to be afraid. Why? Because he has his back, because he is for them. He is on their side. He is fighting for them. And I think it's really important that we reinforce for ourselves that God is always on our side. Even in his, in his silence, God is on our, our side. Even when it feels like we're losing the battle, God is on our side. Romans 8, 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And I bring my problems to God, and I just trust him with my problems, and I just say, all I have to do is look at the cross. He gave me his own son. There's nothing that I'll lack, nothing that I'll need. And I bring him my problems, and I find his peace. Bottom line, God is on your side. He is for you. He is not against you. No matter what happens, and if you will surrender your problems to him, he will give you his peace. I surrender, number two, I surrender my wants for his will. I surrender my wants for his will. Talk about praying deeper prayers. And in two weeks, we're going to look at this a little more. But just this idea that prayer is when I take my requests to God, I share them, I surrender them, I lay them at his feet and I find my satisfaction not in what I want but in his will because I know that he is always for me and that he knows what is best for me. He does. It is amazing but this is one of those stories and there are several in the Bible where God's battle plan, his strategy is very counterintuitive. As I said earlier, what is his battle plan? His battle plan? Stand. That's it. You don't got to fight, stand. You don't got to raise a sword. You don't got to lift a boot. You don't got to march, really. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to engage the enemy. You just have to stand. And the reality is, that's exactly what they do. Sometimes God's want is greater than my will. Sometimes I want to fight. I want to I engage the enemy. I want to do something. And 
And yet, here's the battle plan. Ephesians 6.10, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. What's our battle strategy today? It is to simply stand. We are called to stand. Here's the thing. What can you do when you're standing? You can pray. You can worship. And sometimes that's really all God's asking us to do, to pray and to worship. And finally, I surrender my obedience. Oh, I surrender my obedience for his victory. What a beautiful picture we have in the story then because as counterintuitive as as God's plans are, just stand, that's exactly what they do. They stand and they find, they realize the victory. They win the victory just by standing. It's beautiful and it's amazing. And it's incredible because what they do is he puts the praise team out in front of the army and you know what they do? They give the victory march before the battle's even begun. And they march out in victory because that's what God told them to do. God just said, just worship me and I'll take care of the rest. They go to war in worship and in praise and they leave God to fight the battle. And in the end, we need to grasp this reality. Can I just give you this? This is so big today. The bottom line, oh, it's right up there. I put it up there. Surrender and obedience always lead to victory. Surrender always leads to victory. Obedience always leads to victory. Anytime you surrender to God, you have won the battle. You have. Now, there's one small caveat to that. One small caveat to that uh, thing. I'll get there in a minute. Let me challenge you today to identify your biggest present concern. Maybe you can even write out what that concern is. You can write out your biggest concern, your biggest request, your biggest petition, and just lay it before God as a sacrifice because that's what it is. Our problems... We offer them to God as a sacrifice. We watched a, a sermon the other night at this all-night prayer thing. We, we watched this sermon by Jim Samara. He had a great comment. He said, the difference between false gods and the real God, the one true God, is this. False gods love your money. They want your money. False gods love your praise. False gods do not want your problems. God wants your problems. And he is honored when we come to him with our petitions and with our problems and with our needs that are too big for us and the ones that we think we can handle and yet we can't, even those ones that are too small. He loves our problems. And they are like a sacrifice of worship again. I'm saying that I believe that God cares about my problem. He's greater than my problem and he has a will for my problem. And so bring your request to God. And any time that you obey, any time that you surrender, you're going to know victory. Now, here's the one caveat to that. Here's the the issue, the hang-up. I say that and you're like, I don't know about that. Let me tell you why you might question. Every time you obey and you surrender, you'll know victory. Here's the caveat. It's the fact that, um, the one caveat, 
it's this. Sometimes God describes victory differently than we do. Sometimes what is victory to God is different than what we would think is victory. We wouldn't look at that and say that was victory, but God would say that it is. Sometimes when we surrender and we obey, you know what happens? Sometimes God has us in a plane next to Bob, thousands of feet in the air, door open, and God says, jump. (laughs) And we're like, jump? (laughs) I don't jump out of planes. And God says, trust me and jump surrender to me and so we surrender to the moment and to the will of God and we jump and suddenly we realize that this is what we wanted to do all of the time we realize that leap of faith was a huge victory for us jumping out of our comfort zone was a huge victory because you see, you see sometimes God defines victory differently than we do you need one more example of this one more example of this let me take you to the cross. Let me take you to crucifixion night. And Jesus is crucified. And Jesus is put in the grave, right? Was that a victory? It was to God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you care about our problems. Thank you that you will fight our battles. Thank you that you know what true victory is because sometimes what we think might be a victory uh, wouldn't really be a victory. Thank you that you love our families more than we do, that you love our church more than we do, that you love us more than we do, that you know our families and our church and you know us better than we do. And Lord, teach us. Lord, teach us, as the disciples said, teach us how to pray. And Lord, teach us how to pray maybe all night or teach us how to pray without ceasing. Teach us how to pray instead of trusting in our own human strategies. Teach us how to stand and simply worship and simply pray. And teach us how to surrender. Because when we surrender, that's when we're going to know victory. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen.